begins here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and our conversation today is a hot topic to say the least. Never before have I seen a book with more relevance than the book by my next guest, Dr. Alexander Robal, his new book, Globalism versus Nativism, How to Bridge the Digital Divide, Globalism, the Rest of the World, Nativism, Donald Trump. All this and more coming up here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And we're back, and it's conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. We're talking with Dr. Alexander Burrell, his new book, Globalism versus Nativism, and a whole lot more. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's it's my pleasure, sir. Happy New Year to you as well. Um, Happy New Year to you and to all of your listeners. Thank you. Maybe the good place to start is defining terms. What do you mean by globalism and what do you mean by nativism? Well, by globalism, I mean the fact that um, that increasingly around the world we're going to have, and this is, I think, very important to underline, it's not in the United States, it's happening everywhere, everywhere. The globalists will basically are and will be the people who have the right um, education, the right uh, degrees, especially in STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, or have the right technical skills to make a pretty good living. And these people generally will not oppose immigration. They will not be against technology. They will not be against free trade. And uh, they predominantly live in bigger cities. And then the nativists are people who, for many reasons, do not or will not have these qualifications, um, the right degrees to, to make a decent living or the right skills. They predominantly live in smaller towns and uh, countryside, and they are more prone to vote for people who blame immigrants and free trade. And um, I think we have to understand why the nativists uh, vote the way they do and why they feel the way they do, because they are afraid after all. Can we restate that those propositions, though, into the haves and the have-nots? To a certain extent, yes. Um, I think that, uh, you know, um, I think to a certain extent we, we have, uh, I mean, you know, uh, Professor Stiglitz, who was a Nobel Prize winner, uh, he published a book, Globalization and Its Discontents, and that was like more than 10 years ago. So to a certain extent, yes, we could say that that the nativists and populists are um, are going to be poor, and that's why they um, they want to retain certain uh, types of uh, sectors in the economy, whether it's coal mining, steel, um, that uh, are not considered to be uh, competitive in the short or medium term, but uh, it's what they know. Uh, the proposition, especially. The emphasis, I think, on my part, what I've tried to do in this book is insert the issue of technology and the acceleration of technology with artificial intelligence, with robots, with um, with machines. Um, the numbers are staggering. For example, um, we have a population in the world of 7 billion people, and we already have uh, right now the numbers are in 2019 we have 26 billion devices of all kinds connected to the Internet of Things. And in 2025, we will have 75 billion devices connected to the Internet of Things. Of course, your listeners know we're talking about not just cell phones and tablets 
and computers and televisions with dishwashers and um, refrigerators. And I do fear that um, if the causes of this divide, technological and uh, an economic divide, um, are not are not addressed and measures are not taken by policymakers, we will live in a world where the rich and the upper middle class will live in those smart homes where the dishwashers will you know, decide when to wash the dishes and the refrigerator will order the food and um, everything will be run, uh, all the machines will be connected to the Internet of Things, and that will be possible, and also they will be, you know, they will be taken home by self-driving cars. So the rich, the upper middle class will have those homes, um, and um, or people that work in tech companies or people who have access to technology because of their work, whereas the rest of the people will not have that kind of uh, lifestyle. And I'm not, I'm not a Luddite. I want to emphasize this. And by the way, I'm um, very honored to be on your show. Um, Thank Mr. you. Solomon. I'm very honored to be on your show and in your very kind presentation. I want to emphasize that I'm not a Luddite. <laughs> I teach courses online. I, uh, I actually published my last book, um, self-published on Amazon, because my publisher's previous books had retired. I shop, you know, with our cashier, and I use social media. So I like technology. But uh, President Obama, whom we all miss so much, in his last State of the Union said that, that we need to have a conversation about technology because surely it creates great gadgets, devices that are, improve our quality of life, and it creates jobs, but it also destroys jobs. And looking ahead, I think it's a debate that we need to have among people, corporations, regulators, governments, even international institutions, so that, uh, so that the people who are being left behind uh, do, do not fall behind. It's interesting to me because as you talked, I got two reactions. Reaction one is if it keeps up, isn't it the stuff that revolutions are made out of? Yes. When you mean technologically, yes. We are in the fifth industrial revolution. And... Um, you know, and I believe that um, in my book, I have, uh, I try to include people who are smarter than me. And the second part of my book has contributions by uh, 23 high-ranking professionals. Many are professors, uh, but also presidents, vice presidents of chambers of commerce. One of um, there's the vice president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce for Energy and Technology. He has written a contribution. But uh, I, I try to be very inclusive in my books. And, and the 23 professionals, many of them professors, they are from the top 20 economies in the world. So there's a professional from the U.S., from China, from, from, uh, from, from Japan, Germany, U.K., and so forth, the top 20 economies in the world, right? And the consensus is pretty much that there's no going back. Uh, maybe when you talk to the Europeans, they're more, okay, we have to slow it down, you know, and when we talk about, then uh, when we try to look at the measures that we can, we can take uh, in terms of policymakers, what can we do to, to bring people who are the, 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 the nativists who are falling behind, these people who are falling behind, what do we do? When it comes to adopting measures to, to bridge this uh, uh, economic divide and this technological divide, Europeans sometimes tend to be more on the side of let's let's say, for example, a universal income for people who are very old and cannot be trained, cannot be retrained, right? Um, so there are nuances when it comes to 
addressing the uh, the impact of the uh, digital and economic divide. When it comes to, for example, Mr. Uh, Elon Tusk and Mr. Gates have publicly said they favor taxing robots. Obviously, as we have more and more robots in factories, they're replacing human beings, and we have to fund the welfare state and uh, pensions and health care. So uh, some kind of levy on robots um, is something that needs to be part of the uh, conversation. Now, when you talk to Europeans, they tend to be more in favor of taxing robots and universal income. When you talk to Americans, they tend to be more, you know, um, well, that's kind of dangerous. So there are a lot of nuances in that regard when you ask about the revolution, where it's going. I don't think there's a consensus. Well, but it also seems to me that you can take it even a step further in terms of revolution. If we're not careful, is this going to lead to people taking to the streets? Yes. Um, I, I, <laughs> yes, I, I have that worry myself. That's why I, I, you know, that's why I sought the advice and counsel of, of, of these uh, 23 professionals, you know, most of them professors from very prestigious universities. And I share that concern, and that's why um, I decided to write this book. Um, I, I share that concern. I, 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 let me put it this way. I think that, uh, you know, when we see these commercials about, uh, you know, people living in these intelligent homes, and some of these intelligent homes already exist, where, you know, the, you can regulate the air conditioning automatically and the dishwasher works by itself, and and you have, um, and you, have uh, you know, the refrigerator orders the food when you're out of yogurt, and, you know, uh, rolling delivery pods deliver the pizza, and, uh, you know, out in the backyard, you know, you have a party and there's a drone flying overhead taking pictures of your party. Uh, these homes technically already exist. And my fear is that executives, I'm not uh, somebody, I want you to know, I'm not somebody who was a socialist. I am a capitalist. But I do believe that executives of many companies um, obviously know that replacing people with machines has very clear benefits. People, machines don't need to take time off. They don't get sick. They don't need leave. And um, I think that there is a, a very much of a – I think there is a trend among uh, many companies to replace humans with machines for the stated reasons. And um, I think that the middle class, you know, think the economy is doing well, so the middle class doesn't really maybe think about it that much. Um, I'm not saying there's a strat, there's a conspiracy, but it, there, I think there's a trend towards – you know, executives and big companies, they don't have to stand in line. So um, they, they replace as many people as they can with machines. And then um, the middle class is kind of enjoying things because the economy is doing well. We have unemployment at a 40-year low. And, um, and people who actually work in stores, they actually see a benefit of technology because they don't have to deal with as many customers. But um, they maybe are not realizing that in three, four years, they will be redundant because that job will no longer be there. They will be replaced by a machine. There's already a hotel in Nagasaki in Japan staffed completely by robots. So I do fear that kind of trend where the executives want to do away with as many people as possible and replace them with machines. The middle class is kind of enjoying things. And people working in stores, they're just happy when people, you know, do their shopping on an app because they can go home sooner. But they don't realize that in two or three years, they're going to be out of a job. Hmm. Having just passed the holiday season, it never occurred to me that shopping on my computer, and I have did it, um, is exploiting the digital divide. Well, I, I wouldn't 
be so dramatic. I mean, I think <laughs> I don't think that you're I don't think you're contributing to it. I, I think that that uh, again, it, it's something that I think needs to be debated. I think it's something that that needs to be out there, and and I think societies needs to have a debate. I think the regulators have to be involved. Um, but but let me also give you some examples of things that are not working out. So I wouldn't I wouldn't like want to 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 go overboard. I mean, uh, am I allowed to to name companies on sure. your show? Sure. For example, as you know, and uh, as you know, Tesla has had very bad. Uh, Tesla was going to be the company that was going to mass produce electric cars in America, and. Unfortunately, I wish them well, but unfortunately, as you know, they have not been able to mass produce the the Model Three. Um, their stock price just dropped nine percent last week. You know, the results are not good. Even Mr. T- Elon Tusk himself has admitted that his highly automated plants, without practically any workers, um, have not worked out. So um, we have, uh, you know, we have a company that I think delivers some benefits in terms of replacing, not replacing, but making up for the lack of cabs in certain cities with, with suburbs, right? But that company is very popular, especially among young people, but it's also had many issues. You, you know which company I'm referring to, right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, look, we had the accidents with the self-driving cars. So I think that, um, that uh, you know, and there are studies that, for example, show that maybe 30% of people will not want to be in a self-driving car. I don't, I, I don't want to. I mean, I drive, you know, I drive stick, and I don't want the car to take me someplace. I want to drive the car myself. So there are studies that show that some people will not want to be in a self-driving car. And other people maybe think they're going to enjoy being in a self-driving car, reading something, and they're, they're going to get busy. So I don't think we should, you know, be afraid that this is something that's going to happen immediately. Because a lot of these uh, technologies still have a long way to go. And there are, if you wish, uh, Mr. Solomon, I can tell you, for example, things that robots cannot do. Um, but I, I wouldn't be too afraid of, you know, we're not, we're not there yet in terms of, you know, a brave new world. Or when we think of the movies, you know, by Michael J. Fox and Back to the Future, we're not there yet. These technologies are still evolving. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning is Dr. Alexander Barol. His new book, Globalism versus Nativism, Bridging the Digital Divide. My name's Peter Solomon. Okay, doctor, the other thing that occurs to me is instead of trying to heal the digital divide or help bring people up to a common area, there are some politicians in some countries that are exploiting it. I'm thinking of France and the gasoline riots that they had. I'm thinking of Germany and the return of um, the right. And I'm thinking of here in America and Donald Trump. You're absolutely right. Um, you're absolutely right. I agree with you, Mr. Solomon. I think there was a. Um, I think that populism has always existed. I mean, um, if we look back, you know, throughout centuries, there always have been populists in the sense that that countries and and, and the world is complicated. Um, but in the, the recent spate of populism, um, let's say let's say began with Brexit, uh, June uh, 2016. There's a very narrow majority of British deciding to leave the European Union, and you see where it's gotten them. 
And let's remember, it was the English who voted to leave, not the Irish or the Scottish, okay? But anyway, it was only 52% to 48 So Brexit was the latest round of populism. Then, of course, we had the elections in the U.S. We know what happened. And um, then, of course, there was this uh, really, really big scare that um, after uh, Brexit, in the Netherlands, there was going to be a victory by the far-right populist party that would take the Netherlands out of the European Union or out of the Eurozone. That didn't happen. There was a fear of Frexit, which is the same thing. Marine Le Pen was going to become the president of France, was going to take France out of the Eurozone, maybe. Uh, that didn't happen. So let's not get too worried. I mean, there, populism has made progress, but we are not, let's say, in the 1930s. The middle class is still very resilient. Uh, it's true that this year we've had um, a uh, premier of Ontario who has been elected, who is proud to call himself a populist, and that's not a small issue because Ontario is a very important province in Canada. We've had uh, Mr. Bolsonaro elected as president of Brazil, who is also a populist. We have a president of the Philippines who's also a populist. So I think that that, that we should be worried, but not not panicking in terms of the progress of populism. So what should we be doing instead? Well, I think that um, that policymakers need to uh, uh, policymakers need to uh, if they want to be statesmen, of course, I think that policymakers need to um, to be inclusive and to reach out uh, to people who, who feel like they're falling behind. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's in Ohio or in uh, eastern France or in the Ruhr Valley in Germany. You used to be able to work in a factory, start working in a factory at age 18, retire at 60 with good pensions, good benefits, and that is slowly going away. And, of course, we have to understand why people vote for populists. We have to – I'm not justifying the actions of the populists, but – if we want to defeat populism, we have to understand why people vote for populists. We have to understand their fears, their, their worries. They're thinking, how is my son going to make a living? My daughter, uh, unless you know, he or she has the brains to be a scientist, mathematician, um, engineer, and not everybody has the brains to do that or the money to get that degree, how is my son daughter going to make a living? So we also have to understand the populists are afraid. Uh, they may act in a way that we don't like, but, but they, they are worried about the future. They are worried how are their kids going to make a living. Increasingly, as everybody knows, the technology cannot be stopped. Of course, I think regulators have to play a big role, um, and I think regulators are playing an important role. If it weren't, up for, if it weren't for the regulators, in the European Union, for sure, we would have airlines that would be flying with one pilot, you know. Um, and there's a particular airline that I, – I, I don't like to name names, but there's a particular airline in, in, in the European Union which, you know, would have people standing in the plane instead of sitting and would charge people to go to the restroom and, and, uh, and, and would have one pilot. So I think the role of regulators is very important when it comes to drones, for example. Um, if you're interested, I can give you a number of, a number of drones sold. And there are more and more commercial drones around the world. But, of course, they have to be regulated so, so we don't have uh, you know, incidents with, with planes or with helicopters. So I think regulators need to be given a lot of power. And, and uh, technology is always ahead of the curve. 
And uh, as you saw, when, when there were the two um, fatalities with the self-driving cars, regulators stepped in and they said, you know, we've got to stop these trials, and, and now they've started them again. So I think the regulators have to play a key role in, in making sure the technology is, is works for people and not the other way around. Well, what about those regulators who want no regulations? I'm thinking about a lot of government officials, again, in this country as an example, that want less regulation, want a free economy to do whatever the heck it wants. Well, I, 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 I share that concern, Mr. Solomon. I, I share that concern. Um, obviously, there are different kinds of regulations. There are environmental regulations. There are, um, there are um, labor regulations. Here we're talking more about, let's say, um, standard uh, technical regulations. But yeah, I, sh- I share that concern. Um, but I, I think even it is in, even in the interest of the uh, even the, it's in the interest of, of, of executives and corporations and even of rich people. They have no interest in a world where um, we're going to have a big e- digital divide, a big economic divide, where uh, you know planes and 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 drones, could you know, a drone can bring down a plane. I, I don't think that that even I don't think the rich and executives and corporations want that to happen. So, um, I I think that that um, certainly the media and certainly the public and uh, and society needs to to make sure that regulators are held to. Uh, you know, are held to, they're, 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 they're accountable and, and to make to push them and, and make sure that we don't have monopolies in certain sectors and technology. Um, so I think if the media plays a role, if NGOs play a role, if the public plays a role, these regulators will, will have to be held accountable and, and it, and it's, it will be a struggle for sure. Absolutely. Um, but a lot of people see regulations as stifling economic growth, stifling the ability to jobs be being, being created. I mean, if you, in for example, the regulation that you put air scrubbers and smokestacks, less smokestacks, more air scrubbers, less of an ability to use coal. There goes the coal industry, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, but again, I would emphasize that I would emphasize that. Um, I would emphasize that it's one thing to talk about labor uh, standards. It's another thing to talk about uh, environmental standards. And it's another thing to talk about standards uh, that apply to how uh, devices, gadgets, or vehicles operate. So, um, and I also think there's, um, I also think there's a big misconception about uh, trade agreements. For example, President Obama's uh, agreement with 11 countries in the Pacific, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, was a new generation trade agreement. And um, a lot of what, it was a very good trade deal. People think, oh, it just reduces tariffs and therefore we lose jobs. No, that's that's not the case. Actually, the U.S. uh, has signed uh, trade agreements with uh, bilateral, with Peru, with Colombia, with uh, Chile uh, in the last 10, 15 years, and also with the Central American uh, countries, where actually the U.S. Uh, trade surplus has increased as a result of tariffs being cut 
both by the U.S. and the Central American countries and the three that I named, Peru, uh, Colombia, and Chile, uh, free trade agreements. Um, Mexico is the outlier uh, for different reasons. But in these other cases, actually, the U.S. Uh, went from a trade deficit to a trade surplus with the Central American countries and with uh, Colombia, Peru, and Chile, with which it negotiated free trade agreements. But even beyond that, when President Obama signed the Trans-Pacific Partnership, yes, it did have uh, it did call for reductions in tariffs, but it also introduced labor and environmental standards so that countries that are not as developed as the United States, you have you know you ensure that that labor unions are protected, that members of labor unions are protected, that you have environmental standards. So uh, it was really a um, it was really very very negative that the Trump administration decided to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership because it not only opened up trade for American companies, it also um, created and enforced had mechanisms to enforce these trade excuse me these labor and environmental standards of in a group of 12 countries in the Pacific Rim, some of which are developing countries, emerging countries, Peru, for example, and that's in our interest that, um, you know, in Peru we have strong labor unions, environmental standards, and the, and, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership was also an agreement that eliminated, uh, that created, had mechanisms for resolving disputes between an, an investor company and the country where it invests. It also opened up um, bidding, public sector bidding for foreign companies. So these sometimes it is, I understand it is complicated for uh, the average person and you know that's what I humbly try to do as a professor and I teach international trade. Um, let me just say that the Trump administration has made my courses a lot more difficult to teach, right? Because I'm having to constantly update what is happening. So I have to teach NAFTA and I have to teach a new agreement, right? So uh, the Trump administration is giving me quite a lot of work. But um, joking aside, um, it is complicated. These trade agreements are very complicated. I understand that the broader public needs time to um, to to understand the, all of all of the uh, elements that go into these trade agreements. It's no longer about cutting tariffs. It's also about, um, as I say, you know, opening up public sector bidding, opening up countries to foreign investment. It's also about having mechanisms to resolve disputes between an investor company and the country. And uh, frankly, you are uh, – I'm, I'm very uh, grateful to the opportunity to explain this, but we see some – a lot of networks that just don't want to go into the details because maybe the ratings you know, would not be as high if they were to get into these details. They're kind of not as exciting as talking about other things, right? Absolutely. Um, and it seems to me, too, that if we help these other countries develop, it'll be a contributor to the immigration issue in that people are going to want to stay in their home country and not come here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, when when uh, NAFTA is an agreement that has brought so much benefit to the United States, um, when it was originally negotiated, first it was an agreement, the U.S. had a trade agreement with Canada, and at the end of the Bush 41 administration, of course, with President Bush having passed away this year, um, and I really do think that the tributes to him were well-deserved. Whether you're a Republican or Democrat, he was a good person. He was somebody who you know, devoted his life to public service. Again, regardless whether you agreed with him on the 
policies. He was a, somebody who served his country and had a you know great marriage with, with Miss Bush, Barbara Bush. And and the reason I'm bringing up the Bush 41 administration is that after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of communism, there was this idea that let us negotiate um, agreements that that uh, bring about more uh, economic integration, right? So there was the U.S.-Canada agreement, and then the idea was let's bring in Mexico so that instead of exporting people, uh, Mexicans coming to America, Mexico will, Mexico will export products to the U.S. and Canada. And that worked out quite well because, as we all know, Mexicans are not immigrating to the United States, and uh, NAFTA generates uh, $2 trillion in trade every year. And Canada and Mexico are two of America's top two export destinations. China is also kind of in the top three, but China and uh, excuse me, Canada and Mexico are America's two top export destinations. And uh, the supply lines, you know, the the, the supply lines between the, the making vehicles, it, it's it's much more complicated. I mean, the vehicles get assembled initially in the U.S. and they go they're assembled in Mexico. They come back to the United States. So the integration of, of, of the U.S., Canada, and Mexico is a success story. Uh, it's true that Mexico has generated a big trade surplus for the United States, especially in the automobile sector, but um, otherwise it's been a very, very successful agreement. And when we come back with Dr. Um, Burrell in just a bit, we're going to talk about immigration and its involvement in all of this. Because as someone once said, um, if we don't have immigrants, who's going to clean the toilets? Now, that may sound simplistic and somewhat harsh, but a lot of people have that question in the back of their mind. And you're listening to Conversation here in 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be right back after these messages. And we're back. It's Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. Our conversation this morning is with Dr. Martin uh, Alexander Barreau. His new book, Globalism versus Nativism, How to Bridge the Digital Divide. My name's Peter Solomon. All right, um, doctor, immigration, how does it fit into all of this? Because some people would say we need immigrants because they do the low-level jobs no one else wants to do. Correct. If I may just, Mr. Solomon, correct something, because a very, very interesting question just to, um, to button up, as, uh, as Mr. Chuck Todd on Meet the Press would say, just to button up the, your last question, I wanted to say that NAFTA, the, I, I was talking about the Bush 41 administration, you know, it was the end of the, Mr. Fukuyama said it was the end of history, it was the end of communism. We all thought that, you know, capitalism and democracy would flourish everywhere. Obviously, that hasn't happened. But um, the, what I meant to say is that under the Bush 41 administrations and negotiations uh, to create NAFTA were started. It is true that President Clinton then um, got NAFTA through Congress, and, and, uh, and that, that was also a great achievement on his part. There was, there was a lot of resistance from from labor unions, and uh, so credit would go to both presidents. Bush, uh, the negotiations were started under Bush 41, and, and NAFTA was approved uh, under Clinton. He got it through Congress. And, and let me also add that America has benefited hugely in terms of NAFTA and the free trade agreements uh, bilaterally with uh, countries I mentioned, with uh, Peru, with uh, Colombia, with Chile, Central American countries, because it exports a lot of agricultural products to those countries. So um, that's something that that maybe sometimes gets lost, but America, as a result of these trade agreements, America's agricultural sector has been able to export a lot more 
to these countries. You're asking me about immigration? Absolutely. Right now in America, um, you know, before we have more robots, we're not there yet. It, unemployment is non-existent. It's 3.7%, the lowest unemployment rate in, in 40 years. Of course, uh, credit also is uh, due where, uh, you know, we must also remember the, uh, the President Obama left office with an unemployment rate of 4.7%. And we must also understand that the international economy ha had been growing uh, very robustly, not just uh, rich countries, but also emerging countries. And of course, the tax cut helped. And, um, but anyway, we, we do have the lowest unemployment rate in, in 40 years, so absolutely. Um, guest worker programs for, for people to work in agriculture um, are an obvious part of the conversation when it comes to fixing America's immigration system. There, it is obvious that in many sectors, Americans, for whatever reason, uh, probably don't want to be doing uh, work in agriculture. And, and these guest worker programs exist. They just have to be managed and, um, in my view, probably, um, probably increased in terms of the number of people that that can come into the United States, work in agriculture, and then go back to their countries. And, and these people, by the way, they don't accrue any kind of benefits in terms of becoming residents of the United States. They're not on a path to become residents. They just come and work during the harvest, and they go back to their country. But a lot of nativists are against guest workers, are against immigration. They should all stay home and leave us alone. Well, that's an, that's unfortunate because uh, because the, the reality is right now in America, it's we have a conversation in America where there's a discussion that uh, even to help students pay off their uh, student debt, um, that measures may be taken so that students start working sooner, and they will do so because the government or uh, will pay off part of their student debt. There is also a positive conversation about people who um, have committed felonies, but not, you know, not um, not big crimes, and and have already served most of their sentence. That they may be allowed to um, out of prison and uh, and start working. So America is running out of people, and um, and these are two examples, you know. Um, the discussion about helping students pay off their debt so they can start working and helping felons who are about to end their sentences start get out of jail and start working. America's running out of workers, and the robots are not, you know, we have a lot of, we have robots, but we're not there yet. Um, number of robots is uh, comparatively small. I can give you a number, for example. There are um, 8.6 million robots in the world. 7.3 million of those robots are in the services sector, and 1.3 million are in the industrial sector. So yes, in 10, 15 years, we will have a lot more robots, but we're not there yet. So in the interim, um, people who people who don't want immigrants or don't want guest workers are just simply, uh, unfortunately, misinformed. And all we can do, uh, uh, you as as a uh, great presenter of a great program, and and the media and you know, and the professionals and, and, uh, and academics and NGOs, what I can do is tell people the truth and hope that uh, give them numbers and explain things to them without being condescending, understanding their fears, understanding their frustrations, understanding their anxieties, 
without putting them down, which something I may say sometimes does happen. You know, um, I, I live in technically in Maryland, but right next to Washington, D.C., and it is true that sometimes the elites speak to people in rural areas or in, you know, in smaller towns with certain condescension, and, and then these people feel left behind, not just economically, but they also feel, you know, they feel like the world is changing too quickly, and their country is being taken from them. And this, again, is not a phenomenon that is happening in the U.S. It's happening in other countries, too. So uh, we live in a complex world, as you know, Mr. Solomon. We have, you know, we have uh, great economic interdependency. We have a lot of migration flows. We have terrorist attacks. We have climate change. We have rising inequality. And, and people don't have the time to analyze all these things. So, so populists appeal to, to, people with, uh, to people's fears with, with simplistic messages. And I think that, that, that policymakers and, and real statesmen, they have to, to, to address these worries with, with specific policies, but, not, uh, but also understand why, why people are afraid, why people are worried, why people don't know how am I going to make a living? And and uh, it requires a lot of patience. It requires a lot of um, goodwill. And I think that it's very sad right now, uh, not just in America, but in other countries, divisions between left and right. Um, and and when you see all these, I'm I'm frankly saddened by all the partisan attacks. And uh, I think I think that again, I mean, I'm maybe repeating myself too many times, but I think that the media if academics, if think tanks, if NGOs and, and, and moderate politicians explain things to people correctly, I think people have common sense in the long term. Maybe in the medium term, things are complicated, but in the long term, people do have common sense. How much of it, though, is fear that they're not going to have a job or their kids won't have a future? And how much of it is fear of the other, a different skin color, a different religion, a different race? I think it's both. I think it's all of the above. Um, I mean, in Europe, we're seeing, for example, we just have the first uh, populist government in, in Western Europe, in Italy, that was elected this year, well, last year, in 2018. It's made up of a left-wing populist party and a right-wing populist party. And we have a government in Poland, which is undermining basic freedoms, freedoms of the judiciary, freedoms of the media. We have another right-wing government, extreme right-wing government in Hungary. So um, I'm just mentioning those two countries because uh, in those two countries, yes, they're the, the prime ministers. They basically tell people, well, you know, uh, we don't want any immigrants from outside of the European Union, uh, even though uh, it would, they would probably need them for certain jobs. So I, I do think there is um, – when, when the world is complex – when, when we live in a complex world, when things are changing so quickly, technology is, 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 is accelerating so quickly, and uh, there's immigration and there's all these cultural issues, um, then I think that uh, people just um, are drawn to very simplistic messages. And, you know, populists basically tell people uh, that immigrants take their wages – or excuse me, immigrants take their – populists basically tell people that immigrants – depress their wages, they take their jobs, they're criminals, they bring in their entire families, and if they happen to be Muslims, they're a threat to national security. Now that is something, it took me about 20 seconds to say that. And that is, of course, 
completely false and statistically false, and it is a lie because most immigrants are actually 98% are tax-paying, law-abiding people and actually commit fewer crimes than natives. Um, but in a time of – in a complicated world, uh, it's easy for populists to say, oh, let's blame the foreigners. Let's blame the immigrants instead of looking – you know, to, uh, uh, trying to address very complex issues going on in our societies, whether it's economic issues, technology, social issues. And it, I mean it has always existed in mankind. The, the, you know, the urge to blame the foreigner, to blame the immigrant. But now we live in a very interconnected world, and uh, it makes things worse. I remember, as you were saying, that history. Um, no dogs or Jews, the lace curtain Irish, the Catholic riots, all of which examples of populism in earlier years. Yes, indeed. And, of course, I, I, I want you to know that, that I, I share your concerns, and, and of course, um, I'm, I'm very honored to be on your program and, and that you asked me these very high, you know, complex questions, and I'm, I just try to, you know, to, to convey my ideas as best I can. Um, it, it, the world is so complex. I'm sorry that, you know, with everything that the, the, the complication of the trade deals in my book, I, I do have two last names. I'm, I'm sorry just to mention it. My, um, because I do hope that I can uh, sell my book. Oh, that's <laughs> one of the reasons you're here, Doctor. <laughs> yes, I mean, so that I, hopefully, uh, you know, I can keep, uh, you know, I can, I can get some my book to be purchased. And so my, I have two last names. My first last name is M U N S, and then R U. The second last name is R U B I O L. And also, my book is out as an ebook, so um, and it only costs uh, three dollars. So. Um, I'm hoping that people will buy the book because, you know, sometimes I'm like a professor and I forget to mention that, that I really want people to buy my book, right? And if it's an e-book, well, it's only $3. That's pretty affordable, I would say, for most people. Um, so I do hope that, that people read the book because it has not just mine. Again, I emphasize I have 23 professionals, most of them professors from the top 20 economies in the world. I mean, a professor from Japan, a professor from you know, Germany, a professor from Turkey, a professor from China, you know, giving their view on this issue. How do we address this digital divide? And uh, some obvious solutions are more lifelong training. Um, and another topic of this discussion is whether we should apply some levy or some tax on the use of uh, technology, robots, because, I mean, if you replace a person with a robot, obviously the person, part of the person's paycheck is going towards funding uh, pensions, health care. So if you replace that person with a robot, that should be part of the discussion. So I, I emphasize that you know the second half of my book has very interesting ideas by people who are engineers and not, not like me. I'm not an engineer. And uh, they also provide their point of view from their countries where they have lived most of their lives, whether it's Japan or it's or it's Germany or it's um, or it's India. Um, for example, in Japan, Japan is one of the, mo the countries with the most uh, number of robots. Um, and, uh, but I can tell you, for example, that Germany is not far behind. There are 74 robots per 10,000 workers in, in Germany right now. So 74 robots per 10,000 workers is, is already pretty high. And um, there are many factories in Germany where uh, it's 
basically machines, making other machines with a few humans supervising, right? And there are also farms that, you know, are very automated so that, uh, you know, the cows are taken care of by machines, basically. And it is a frightening world. And I have um, one of the contributors to my book, um, Dr. Carlos Varadelo, he is a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley and uh, has a PhD in engineering. And he just loves technology. And I have these conversations with him because he says, I say to him, Carlos, well, you know, um, he's, he's very keen on automation of the health care sector. And uh, he views it also as something that would bring down the cost of health care. For example, if you have diagnostics done by a machine, and, and that is something that, that can be done already with uh, small robots called bobs. So if you have the diagnostics done by machines, which do it as well as human beings, then you're bringing down the cost of health care. Um, he also says that, um, that, that pharmacies uh, should uh, evolve, that pharmacy used to be places where uh, chemists would come up with new uh, medications, but now pharmacies are not really that. They're just the ways of distributing medications to the population, and uh, people pay a lot of money to get a pharmacy degree. So he uh, has he has very very interesting ideas about how to automate and how to modernize the healthcare system while at the same time bringing down costs. Right, but um, the problem is. That not, uh, you know, you try to tell a doctor who is five years away from retirement that he is supposed to give up diagnostics and just concentrate on doing more value-added job or more value-added tasks, that's going to be a tough sell, too. There's going to be pushback. And I joke to with Dr. Comparadelo, I say, well, what about me? I can be replaced by a, by a machine. I can be replaced by a robot, right? Um, I already teach courses online. So, um, and then he says, no, Alex, don't worry. You will not be replaced by a robot. You have to view it as you will be liberated from the more repetitive tasks so that you can do more value-added uh, tasks. And there is a debate uh, as to whether companies that replace lower-skilled employees with machines will still have employees that do uh, tasks that have more value-added. And that's a debate that is, you know, that it remains to be seen whether that happens or not. So I also think the media, it's very interesting to, for the media and for NGOs, think tanks, to, to do studies, to follow up what is happening. I mean, is it true that when, when companies are replacing uh, lower-skilled people with, with machines, they are still keeping people with uh, higher skill levels in those factories or not? Um, and that's something that has to be monitored. And you're listening to Conversation. My name is Peter Solomon. My guest this morning has been Dr. Alexander Munoz Rabal. His new book, Globalism versus Nativism, How to Bridge the Digital Gap. Doctor, do I need a PhD in economics to read your book? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's, um, it is, um, no, I've, I've, I really try very hard to, to make it, um, um, very accessible to, to the average reader. And, um, of course, we've spoken about, you know, we've been talking about uh, robots and, and trade agreements, but, but the book is, is, is very accessible. Um, it, actually, um, it actually starts with a timeline. It starts in September of 2016. 
um, when uh, you know, a few months before the presidential election, and uh, it has a review of the main political, the main social, uh, economic developments in the United States, in also in Europe, um, since September 2016 until the midterm elections in last November, and. Um, it is um, this review of developments that have happened since September 2016 until the present is carried out in a conversation with Milton Friedman, whom, as you know, was one of the more most influential economists of the 20th century. But Milton Friedman was an advocate of eliminating all government programs, of eliminating taxes, of eliminating all kinds of regulations. So I, was, I used the literary technique of bringing Milton Friedman back to life, he actually died in 2006, so that I could um, argue that we don't need, we should not go in that direction. We should not go in the direction of cutting taxes further. We should not go in the direction of lowering regulations. We need government programs, but um, this, uh, this book completes a trilogy of my last three books I have brought back economists. Uh, from the dead to make it more accessible, uh, to to explain uh, political, economic, social development. And so in this book, it is Milton Friedman who is resurrected so that we can debate these issues. And I do really think it is very accessible to the public. And I'd like to say thank you to my guest, Dr. Alexander Munz Rabol, his new book, Globalism versus Nativism, How to Bridge the Digital Gap. Doctor, do you have a website? Yes, I do. Uh, it's um, uh, com, And um, I hope that your listeners, if they're interested in, in my book and what we've discussed, if you just um, Google the book, Globalism versus Nativism, How to Bridge the Digital Divide, um, it, it, it comes up uh, pretty high. So it's, it's not difficult to uh, purchase. All you need is an Amazon account. And again, the ebook is only three dollars. So, um, just googling uh, "globalism versus nativism: How to Bridge the Digital Divide" will bring up the link of my book. Um, and I hope that I'm not sounding too commercial, but I do have to make a living. Absolutely, I'm still far, I'm still far from retirement. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's an it's an economy where you're going to be around a while, not replaced by a robot. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thank you. It was a great honor. Thank you very much, Mr. Solomon, for having me. It's been my pleasure. And it's been another edition of Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It's coming up into the 50s today. This weather is so unpredictable from one day to the next. No matter where you go, it'll be a little rainy. Take an umbrella and take 94 WIP with you. Always good conversation, especially with the birds flying tonight. All this and more. Go Birds! Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon. Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. As we ease on into WIP Sunday, it's going to be a rainy WIP Sunday going up into the 50s. Take your umbrella with you and take us as well. Always good conversation, no matter what the weather. And I'm pleased to welcome here for WIP Sunday my next guest, Elizabeth Emmons. Now, I'm going to ask her her reaction to a T-shirt I saw once. If I've been put on this earth to accomplish so many things, I'm so far behind, I'm going to live forever. All this and more when we come back here 
94.1 WIP. More in just a bit. And we're back, and we're talking about life. So much to do, so little time. And I'm pleased to say good morning then to my guest, Elizabeth Evans, author of the new book, Life Admin, How, How I Learned to Do Less, Do Better, and Live More. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Peter. It's a okay. pleasure to be here. Thank you. What do you think of that T-shirt I mentioned? If I'm so far behind, I, I'm going to live forever. I think that T-shirt represents how a lot of people feel. Now, it's interesting to me, your background. You're a law professor, J.D., Ph.D., teach at Columbia. You sh- I would think be writing scholarly stuff. This is far from scholarly. So I wrote a scholarly article about this first. Uh, it started out that way, the way a lot of the projects I've worked on do. Um, But this project was started in my own life, and when I started presenting it as a scholarly paper, I started to hear responses from people in the audience that were so intense that I realized I needed to open it up. I needed to speak to a broader audience with it because so many people, most of the things I've written on don't have (laughs) T-shirts that represent them. Different responses from men than from women? You know, it's interesting. So the topic of the book is life admin. It's all of the office, invisible office type work that steals our time. You know, it's the kind of work that managers and secretaries, also known as admins, get paid to do in an office, but that we do invisibly and for free in our lives. And everyone does admin. Some people do more of it than others. And I got the most intense responses, I'd say, from people with small children um, and people who were very involved in caring for small children. So more of the people who were very involved in caring for their small children were women. But probably the second biggest group that got gave me a really intense response were uh, men with young, really little kids uh, who were really involved with their families and who really didn't see this kind of work coming. They knew they'd be involved in doing a lot of you know, hands-on time with their kids. But the idea that their minds would be filled with a whole lot of information and details and planning and coordinating and juggling competing schedules with their spouse and so on was just not something they counted on. Another group was people with aging parents who are ill or need to go into retirement homes um, or people have an illness of their own that they're facing and also people planning weddings, happy events, um, to have a lot of this work. And I would imagine then that people stuck with this work and not feeling very good about it, the overwhelming emotion is one of guilt, true or false? It varies widely. I found uh, four main admin personalities. Some people are feeling bad about this, and a, a few people are feeling pretty good about it. So I studied them all to try to learn more about how we could make it better. Okay, and what did you find? So I found that these four personalities, the superdoer, you can tell you can tell me if any of these sound familiar to you, the superdoer, the reluctant doer, the admin avoider, and the admin denier. So the first two are getting it done and the last two are not getting it done and then the nuances are about how people feel about it. So the superdoer is getting it done and feeling pretty good about it. The reluctant doer is getting it done but really wishes they didn't have to be doing it. The avoider is the one you really tapped into there, which is the person who's not getting it done and who's feeling bad about it, feeling guilty or feeling embarrassed. I uh, even heard the word shame from some of the people I interviewed. Uh, and then the denier is not getting it done but is not feeling bad because the denier doesn't really think admin's a thing at all, doesn't really think there's a, a problem here. It sounds like there's a hierarchy of these, like the, the, you know, the best is super doer and then it all goes down from there. But 
I actually found that I could learn strategies from each of these four personalities. Does one of the personalities tend to marry the same personality in their spouse, or do they marry different? <laughs> it's a great, great question. I think people would be wise to think about this uh, when they're getting married, not necessarily to choose their partner on this um, basis, though people have chosen spouses on more suspect grounds, I think. But uh, just to be aware of it when you're going into things, I do think one common pairing is a, a reluctant doer and an avoider. Uh, so two people, neither of whom is feeling very good about it, one of whom because they're doing more than they wish and the other one because they're not doing so much and feeling bad about it. I think that's a pretty common pairing. You've met my wife and me. <laughs> yeah, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, <clears throat> are these personality types born or made? You know, they vary. People, so there are some people who I think are uh, um, kind of pretty um, strongly one personality, but I think many of us are a mix. Uh, it depends on the context or the relationship. I interviewed one woman uh, who was particularly self-aware and noted that her husband kind of does to her what she does to her extended family. So her husband uh, likes to take on tasks at home in the admin category that are kind of one-off or quarterly, and she gets stuck with what I call bombardment admin, the stuff that hits you all the time, the babysitter, the you know, the retirement home calling about some issue with your parents, all the stuff that's moment to moment. You can't get away from it all day long. Um, and she said, but, you know, with her extended family, she kind of does the same thing her husband does to her to them. So uh, she's not the one in her extended family who's dealing with the relative who needs help all the time. She's the one who's coming in to, like, set up the uh, direct deposit uh, for the person who goes into the retire retirement home. So I think it varies for a lot of us across different relationships. But one big thing that uh, um, we can notice is that if we actually pay attention to it, we may be able in our relationship uh, to make it better, starting with, um, you know, if, if somebody makes a dinner, if you cook a meal for somebody, you spend all day doing it, it's pretty likely at the end of the day somebody will say thank you for the fact that you spent all day doing it. If you spend the day at the DMV, much less likely. And so it's possible to start asking someone about it and actually appreciating someone for it. And uh, that can go a long way. The difference between a denier and an avoider is that the avoider says thank you. Certainly. Um, what can we learn from these various strategies? Well, uh, so one thing we can learn is, uh, for instance, the uh, a one avoider strategy, which works sometimes, is trusting. So trusting that the neighbors near your new home know when to put the garbage out. So rather than going online, looking up the sanitation department, and trying to figure out or calling up or seeing if there's a letter, you know, just looking outside your front door every day and saying, oh, oh okay, today's the day to put the garbage out. And uh, trusting is something we can try out. There are a whole lot of strategies that I've gathered at the back of the book in an ideas to try section because I think one of the things that can be hard about reading a book that aims to help us live better is you can end up feeling like now I just have a whole bunch of other things I have to remember about how I'm supposed to live better. So I've collected some at the back, but also the personalities uh, give us a way in. So it's possible to say, 
I think, you know, I'm going to try this week. What would it look like to be a super doer this week? Or what would it look like to be an avoider? Let me just try that out. And uh, you may remember some of the strategies from the book, and you may also invent uh, some of your own. How do these strategies so play out in your own life? I mean, you're a busy lawyer. Yeah, so uh, one strategy that has helped me a lot and was a surprise of my research my interviews and brainstorming sessions was how many people had uh, gone back to paper uh, for making their to-do lists. I had a big problem with my to-do list. <laughs> I had a, uh, I would put my to-do list in my calendar on the thought that, you know, at 9 a.m. tomorrow I'll do those things, the important thing for tomorrow. And then, of course, I wouldn't get it done. And then I would just put it on repeat. And then the list would get longer and longer of the things I hadn't done. And then I would just add another list at 8 a.m. And you can see why this wouldn't be good, because I wouldn't be clear on what needed to be done and, and when. And so as part of my interviews, uh, one of the things I asked about was to-do lists. I also tried a lot of apps, uh, and I found I wasted a lot of time trying a lot of apps. And a lot of the people I interviewed, especially the super-doers, many of them had gone back to paper, just a simple paper to-do list. For me, I like to have a list in my phone as well. So I use the Simple Notes app in my phone for the running list, so I have that with me always. And when I have a particularly busy day, then I have a, um, a written list. And I learned from one of my interviewees the strategy of putting a, a box at the top of the things that are kind of my good day list, the things that I try to get done every day, the important but not urgent things that no one else is going to try to get me to do, like exercise and, for me, meditate and write. So those kinds of things, having those up top in the running to-do list uh, can help us focus on what's important and live more. Um, how does this uh, work with your various cohorts at the office and at home? Well, I found, like you said, in your relationship, this can be a, a lot of people I interviewed, this can be a real point of tension uh, at home. Um, and also at work, I was focused on life admin, on this work uh, as it plays out in our lives and our homes, um, but it also can really be uh, a point of tension in the office, and yet people aren't always the same at home and at work. Uh, so one uh, brainstorming session I ran with some folks in Glasgow, uh, I found there was interesting, these two women had opposite personalities at work and at home. Uh, so. One woman said, you know, she does this work uh, really well at the office in her job, um, but she can only get it done so well in the office uh, because she avoids all of it in life until the last possible minute, until something's going to catch up with her, or a late fee or something's going to fall apart. And another woman said she thought she was the opposite, that basically her work at work was suffering because she was so on top of all this stuff uh, at, at life. And so it can be you know, different in different places. And it's hard to know sometimes which is more important. It, it sounds like this life admin stuff is really trivial, and it can seem trivial until you think about some um, big-picture facts, like the free application for financial for federal student aid, you know, that students applying for college or often their parents have to fill out this FAFSA form. Been there, done US that. Fam You've done that. It cost mm -hmm. U.S. families 30 million hours last year. 30 million hours, and, you know, for people who have done it, I don't know that that sounds as big of a surprise as it does to other people. Um, home uh, mortgage refinancing, one study found that 20% of U.S. households that could benefit from more mortgage refinancing fail to do so. When there's a foregone savings, there are $5.4 billion 
This is often just because somebody fails to open their mail. Um, as somebody who's been an admin avoider with my snail mail, uh, which can pile up in my hallway, I can see how this uh, could happen. So the stuff seems small, but it really adds up. I think that's part of why people make T-shirts about it. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons, I guess, why time gets away from us, because there's so much things and so many things eating our time. Absolutely. And it, it really varies, too, by phase of life. So when I've given this um, paper, presented it uh, in lots of different places, there are some people who really resonate. They, you know, they would come up and say, you know, you've written the paper. I've never had an academic paper so perfectly describe my life. You know, that's part of what launched me uh, on this journey of uh, writing about it and trying to speak about it um, to, to more people. Um, but there are other people who will say, you know, this doesn't, this doesn't seem like it takes uh, any time at all, and that's what got me interested in the personalities. But another dimension along which people really differ in this is, is you know, wealth. I mean, everyone does admin, but uh, people of means, their admin's really different than, uh, than people who are, who are um, strapped for cash or really even in, deeply in poverty. The stakes of poverty admin are a lot higher, right? I can ignore my snail mail for a week or more, but if you depend on public benefits, you know, delays in opening your mail can lead to losing your home. And it's a lot harder to do the office work of life without an actual office and office equipment. You know, if you don't have a photocopier and a scanner, it's a lot harder to fill out forms and get them to the people who are requesting them when they request them. It's also possible if you're rich enough, you have people who do that stuff for you. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You may have people who help you do it. And then your admin may be managing those people. And one of the things I, I found is that even though – some people's admin is, is worse than others. It really does seem like most everyone deals with some of this, and it's possible in any particular life for this to be a, a real source of, uh, of suffering for people. And one of my hopes is to increase our kind of compassion for each other, uh, that uh, even if somebody else's admin is worse than yours, um, yours may still be pretty hard. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Elizabeth Emmons, her new book, Life Admin. We'll be right back after these messages at WIP Time 717. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Elizabeth Emmons, JD, academic lawyer, and now author. Author of Life Admin, How I Learned to Do Less, Do Better, and Live More. All right, Elizabeth, um, how do we raise kids to do this, to be good at Life Admin? I think we should have a admin ed in schools for all of us to learn this from a young age. But what we can do right now is we can start to raise our kids to own the remembering of a task, and not just the, the doing of the chores. So uh, when my kids uh, get up from the table, instead of saying to them, clear your plates, I say, what are you going to do right now? What's the first thing you're going to do when you get up? So my six-year-old will say, he'll think for a minute, he'll say, I'm going to clear my plate. And I'll say, good remembering. 
So we work on uh, remembering and then appreciating the remembering so they can start to practice this keeping track of things because that's something that all of us have to have to do. But so often we're telling our kids uh, what to do, and we've we got to do that sometimes. But some of the time we can actually uh, give them the ownership of the issue itself. Works for kids, the appreciation, and I think that's critically important. But for adults, there's a lot of things adults do that's life admin that nobody says they appreciate, but it has to get done. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons why I think a a strategy that I have seen um, that superdoers use and others have found uh, helps when, when it falls on them is finding time, dedicating some kind of time uh, for this work so that it uh, gets its due. So one big surprise of my research was how many people told me that they actually kind of liked doing admin, or at least it was okay when there was time for it. One of my proudest avoiders, admin avoiders, of those personalities I, I told you about, there's a quiz at the back of the book too so people can figure out their own admin personality. One of my proudest avoiders I interviewed told me about being uh, stuck on an overseas uh, flight doing his taxes, and he said, you know, it actually, it was kind of fun, uh, you know, when I was just there doing it, and there wasn't something else that I could be doing instead, you know, people said it was a little, it could be a little bit like doing a crossword puzzle, you know, and there could be that satisfaction of, of getting the thing done, if you've ever made a, a to-do list and then put things on it that you'd already done just in order to cross them off the list, then uh, you know what I mean, but so one of the strategies that I have picked up is to um, find windows to dedicate to it, uh, so to dedicate an hour to it. Sometimes I even do this with other people, uh, with a friend far away on the phone or on a um, you know, video conference. We have a study hall. We set aside an hour, and then we meet up. We say, hello, what are you going to work on? And then at the end, we both say, congratulations, you did the thing. That for when I have really hard admin to do, sometimes that's nice. But also, for some people, doing it with somebody else is not appealing. We're all different uh, in this regard. Um, and so I'll do it by myself. I have a solo admin study hall uh, chart in the book too. But that moment of knowing I'm going to do it later saves me from feeling overwhelmed from it all the time, as well as making sure I actually get it done. Well, there's an old song by Stephen Sondheim, the Broadway computer, composer, Later When mm-hmm. Is Later. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a real trap for some people. Well, I think that feeling, I mean, that's part of the, the sense of the I'm going to have to live forever to do this is part of why admins can feel so intense these days. There's always been admin, but these days with our devices we carry around, it can get us all the time. So we can feel like we're constantly doing this uh, in the margins of everything else. And so there's really no break from it, and yet also no time when we really focus on it. It makes it hard to get in the flow with anything else and can also lead us to be judged or you know, resented by our partners if we're the one doing it, because it can seem like we're just distracted, not paying attention to them. Why are you always in your phone? And then for the one who's in their phone taking care of things, you know, they're not playing a video game. You know, they're taking care of stuff that needs to get done, and that's another big source of resentment. So what do we do when we feel one way and the partner feels another? Uh, one thing that can really help is to make it visible by asking about it, talking about it. You can do a listening exercise if you're up for that kind of thing where one person just talks for two minutes and says all the admin they've been doing uh, and the other person listens and just says it back. I hear you've been doing this and that and the other thing. Uh, And then the other person can say what they've been 
doing that's not admin, and so they make it visible and see each other. So that's a you know a touchy feely strategy. Uh, other things you can do: start putting it on the to-do list on the fridge or whatever. The um, may have a grocery list on the fridge. You can put the things you've been getting done uh, that are admin. Um, some other strategies, so address attempt to address more directly the stickiness of admin. Admin tends to stick where it lands. Whoever starts doing it, the person who calls the exterminator first is likely to own that task. Uh, I interviewed a couple, um, I interviewed a woman who she and her husband 10 years earlier had driven cross country uh, for new jobs and they took turns driving and calling to set up utilities. One would drive, one would set up utilities and then they'd switch. And she said that 10 years later they still split up utilities based on who had made those calls way back when. Well, once you understand stickiness of admin, then you can also use it to, to unstick things. So, you know, somebody says, wow, how, where is the car registration? You can say, well, I'll show you where it is this time, but that means you come with me and next time you'll know how to find it yourself. Uh, you can do the same thing with your eight-year-old and their hairbrush. Where's my hairbrush? And you say, well, I'll help you find it this time, but then let's find a place you're going to keep your hairbrush from now on. So there are ways, once you understand stickiness, you can use it also to restick things in a new place. I have a friend, a male friend, who hesitates doing admin for his, part, with his first partner because he takes a task, he tries to do it, does it to the best of his ability, and there's always some question he forgot to ask or didn't ask and something that leaves the partner unsatisfied. What do you do? Yeah, that can be really hard when people have different standards for how something should be done. Uh, one thing that the office work metaphor helps with, the idea of realizing that this admin is like office work. So in an office, you'd often have several different people uh, doing an admin job. You know, you, you might have the um, CEO who has a vision. You might have a, a research team that goes and looks into things. You might have a secretary or administrative assistant who implements things. Um, that when one person is doing that whole job, it actually can be kind of overwhelming. And it also, you can see from that that you can, you can split up tasks some. It is possible somebody can go off and do the research, and then you come back together and, and make the decision uh, together. Uh, you can split up the, the implementation from the research. And so you can try to figure out if somebody cares about one part of it a lot, then maybe they do that part. Um, but the other person could still help by going off and doing some research and coming back and saying, here, here here's, here's what I got, and you take it from here. Another thing you can do, people get upset that the timeline, the other person isn't doing it fast enough. You can agree on a timeline. Okay, I'm going to do this. When, when, do you, when are we going to agree I'm going to do it by? And until then, you're not going to bug me about it. And, yeah, if I go on longer than that, yes, then, then it was my problem that I waited too long. But it can stop the reminders that come in that can get people really irritated. But you've got to agree on something you can both live with as a timeline to begin with. How about the superdoer who marries an avoider? Because if he avoids it, she'll just do it. Well, you know, some of these pairings can work out pretty well if one person is doing it and is actually feeling pretty good about it. I mean, the difference between the avoider and the denier is that the avoider says thank you, uh, and that can be a big improvement on a denier, is somebody who says thank you. So starting to find ways to say, you know, I know I, I there must have been so much that, you know, went into uh, all the, that went into this meal, you know, I cooked it or you cooked it or whatever, but... I bet you had to plan this whole thing. You had to figure it out. You had to invite all these people. Uh, and to see the parts of it that aren't, uh, aren't seen um, can really make a difference for people and surprise people to be seen for this kind of work. So really, 
The praise is everything. Uh, I wouldn't know if it's everything, um, but it, it goes a lot further than you think, and there's a lot of research that shows that gratitude is really good for us. Uh, it's good for the person being appreciated, but it's also good for the person who's doing the appreciating. I can see how it might work in the office if your support person does a good job. Tell them. If someone who works for you does a good job, tell them. Well, that's also really changed for me that I see uh, I, I um, run a program in the law school where I teach. And, you know, now when there's an event and people will, will thank whoever was the teacher or the guest speaker or whoever, and, you know, I really feel so much appreciation and will say it to the room for the person who scheduled everything and set everything up, you know, and did all that invisible work uh, to, to get us there. Because the invisible worker likes to be visible every so often. Absolutely. Absolutely. And once we see it, then there are all kinds of things. Once we see this work, there are all kinds of things we can do. There are things we should do as a society and law and markets, um, big changes that we should make uh, as well. And I have a, a little section of the book that talks about that because this isn't just our individual failing. That's what I thought when I first started this project. This was just my way I was failing. Um, and then I thought, no, there are a lot of things we should change uh, uh, in a, the big picture way. But then there are a lot of things uh, we can do uh, ourselves individually in the meantime. Really, though, takes a lot of energy, I would imagine, to change your personality type from one to another to be better at the doing, to be better at life admitting. For me, it was necessary uh, in order to write this book, I had to find a way to clear out some space uh, in the muck uh, in order to, to, to be able to write uh, at all. And some of the strategies really do just make things easier or simpler. I mean, one um, basic one is, you know, technology makes things harder in some ways, but one thing it can make easier, you know, we carry around a camera with us all the time where we can take pictures of information. You know, I can take a picture of my parking spot. I can take a picture of, uh, you know, somebody's recipe and not ask them to send it to me later uh, or have to write it down. Um, I found that I can take pictures of forms. I have to fill out forms for my kid's school. Um, it turns out permission slip I can generally take a picture of uh, and email it. And uh, rather than um, having to send in uh, forms and mail them and photocopy things and uh, and scan things. A lot of those things we can just do with this really simple tool on our phones. I would imagine, because I can remember back to when my kids were young, where the heck that form go? And, oh, God, I spilled coffee on it, and what am I going to do? Ah! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. And you're listening to WIP Sunday? Here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio, Elizabeth Emmons, author of Life at Min. We've got to do another commercial break. Stay with me. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 734. WIP Sunday, 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Elizabeth Emmons, her new book, Life at Min. Elizabeth, there's another old T-shirt. Man plans, God laughs. And that can get in the way of life admin, can it? Well, so our plans don't always um, 
don't always pay off, right? Sometimes they get interrupted, and yet we all have to plan some of the time. It's just part of life, right? Is if we don't, one of um, uh, my interviewees who was a super doer uh, thought that, you know, I asked people the question when I interviewed them, do you know anyone who does too much admin? And then I'd ask, do you know anyone who does too little admin? And, you know, the super doers think that everybody else isn't doing enough planning or enough admin. Um, and, you know, the avoiders and the deniers tend to think that these people who are doing all this admin are, you know, just kind of maniacs. You know that old George Carlin uh, line about driving? Uh, he says something like, you know, have you ever noticed that on the road anyone who's driving faster than you is a maniac and anyone who's driving slower than you is an idiot? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, with admin as with driving, you know, everyone who's going faster than you seems like a maniac and everyone who's going slower than you seems like an idiot. So there's a lot of room for, for judgments uh, in this area. All right. I would imagine being a law professor, being a wife, being a mother, writing legal stuff as well as writing mainstream stuff, if you will. You're a super doer, are you? I'm a reluctant doer. That's my my center of gravity. I have some areas where I uh, am more of a super doer and some areas where I'm an avoider. But mainly I, I, you know, I think I became so aware of this because it's not my kind of natural favorite thing to do. It's not something I'm naturally brilliant at. That's why I had to go and interview other people to try to understand it better and figure out ways to get through it. Is the skill in life admin that you have something that gets passed down from our parents? I'm sorry, could you say that again? Is the skill that you have in terms of life mm. admin something that gets passed down in families? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. I found that people I interviewed, there would be real differences among siblings um, in, in families um, from what people told me. And so it can't be any kind of direct, you know, I mean, not everybody who's a kid of Susan is going to have the same uh, makeup as Susan. But I did notice that there were some kind of trends. So I interviewed one uh, woman who was a serious avoider. She had lots of consequences, personal and, and professional, from just not dealing with her, her admin. She drove around for... She said uh, 18 months with an expired car registration um, and before she finally got picked up for it, and then it still took her several more months to, to get it uh, renewed. Um, she sent me to uh, her mother to interview. I did snowball sampling where you ask who else would be interesting to talk to about this is, is a big way I found uh, subjects. And she sent me to her mother who had been um, – uh, not the not the admin doer in her house um, until her husband died, and then uh, her husband died, and she realized he'd been doing all this admin, and now it was going to fall on her. And she basically trained herself to be a super doer. She created systems for herself uh, to get on top of everything and simplified her life in a set of ways. Moving out of her big house into an apartment uh, that made it more possible for her to get on top of this, to be doing it or getting it done, and feeling pretty good about it. So it was inspiring to see that people could change. But that mother and daughter had a lot in common, it seemed. Hmm. Parents and children, though. I'm thinking of my own life. Uh, my, mm -hmm. father, my father was a super doer, and I at least mm -hmm. started out as an avoider and moved up to a reluctant doer. Uh-huh. Interesting. Well, actually, the, the, um, this uh, 
woman I interviewed, her sister also, it seemed, um, as a child had been very bad at this, so bad that she almost got kicked out of her school. Um, and uh, her parents had the wherewithal and the means. They got on top of it, and they found her a tutor who focused <clears throat> specifically on these issues with her, uh, what sometimes gets called executive functioning skills and organizational skills. And she focused so much on it, she got so good at it, and you know, she graduated and went on, and she's got a great career. And now the family says that when they go travel together, you know, if they're looking around trying to figure out where to go, uh, she's the one who says, well, the sun's over there. East must be that way. We're going this way. And everyone says, oh, my gosh, she got it. And so she also uh, trained herself out of uh, her challenges with admin. But you're also highlighting something else that's important. You can be more than one personality type depending on the situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, for me, my snail mail still piles up. Now I have a system for it when I go through it. Um, but, uh, and I, uh, so things don't catch up with me in a bad way. So I've probably moved to a reluctant doer, but my impulse with my snail mail is still to be an avoider. But with regards to my kids' education, that area is something I've always been kind of a super doer in. I, I care about it a lot and I value it and I see it when I do it. And I feel pretty good about being on top of that area. Um, but even though reluctant doer is my main area, my main kind of mainstay of personality. How about your partner, though? How does that all fit in? Well, so one of the things I talk about in the, the book is that I went through a divorce, which I didn't uh, anticipate when I started the project. So I ended up with way more admin than I had ever uh, uh, anticipated. Um, anyone who's been through a divorce or been close to someone who's been through one knows that, uh, you know, it's really painful. It's really awful. The thing that people don't really see, I think, from the outside is that this painful emotional event comes with this huge onslaught of this administrative work. You, you suddenly are on this legal journey. And I even trained as a lawyer, I found it to be completely overwhelming and perplexing. Uh, and so, you know, I had to find uh, my way through that. One bright spot I found is that in any area like that, like a, a divorce or something with an aging parent um, and retirement. There's usually somebody in your world who's gone through it before you who really knows about it and who can help you navigate it if you go to them with really concrete questions. And I talk about some of these in the book. But, you know, what, what exactly did you do? What should I do first? What did you learn? What did you wish you'd known when you were at my point in this process? Uh, and that person is often really happy to help you and to download all this information from their head that they didn't want in their head in the first place, but they'd be glad to help someone else out with it because they had to learn it from scratch. Okay. Switching gears somewhat, Elizabeth. You've mm -hmm. done legal writing, you've done textbook writing, and you've done mainstream writing. Which kind of writing do you prefer? Hmm. That's such an interesting question. I really, I, I really love to write. I, I mean, I... I found this book incredibly hard to, to write and uh, painful at times. It's not, you know, there's a little of my own life in it. it, it um, and, you know, that part is, is hard. I, I find it very um, meaningful, though, uh, rewarding, uh, the writing, uh, when I can make the space and time to do it. Um, so I, uh, it's hard to say. I, I really, I, I kind of like all of it. Um, even though it's painful. How, how is that? How can it be that you can like something that's painful? Um, but that's been my experience. Well, I've talked to a lot of authors in this job, and some people say it's easy, 
And some people say it's like opening a vein and bleeding on the page. <laughs> Sounds like you Yeah, were, I see. found some some I found books um there I have a the book Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. I think it's an amazing book about writing. Uh, I think knowing and being in touch with other writers um, for me really helps. And then that uh, admin study hall I told you about where I mm-hmm. get together with somebody else and set aside an hour, that eventually, so that used to be something, a space where I would do admin, and then at a certain point it became a space where it was just intentional study hall. I'd get together with another friend, and we'd each do what we need to do, and I would do my writing in that window. So I'd want to try to block out the admin and use that window to do something that is uh, what Stephen Covey's call, Covey calls the things that are important. Uh, but not urgent, the things that no one else is telling you you have to do, sometimes setting aside time to do those and even having somebody else hold you accountable, I think, can help with that. What do your colleagues at the law school think about all this? Uh, My colleagues have been really supportive uh, of this project. As I told you, people responded really intensely to this topic, and uh, people seem to understand that making this life admin visible is really key to changes that we need as individuals but also as a a society uh, to law and markets. And so uh, I think people appreciate that getting the word out about this uh, is important to our making changes. Do you have a website, Elizabeth? I do. It's uh, elizabethemmons.com. Emmons is E-M-E-N-S. And so there's a lot about the life admin uh, book there, uh, as well as my other writings. And certainly we can find it on Amazon and probably Barnes Noble. For sure. Amazon, Barnes Noble, those bookstores should be, I hope, should be everywhere. That's what I, my friends have been sending me pictures of it, <laughs> my first book. So they've been sending me pictures of it in the wild, which is fun. <laughs> What's next? What are you writing next? Oh, you know, right now I'm working on a project actually specifically on disability admin and identity admin, you know, disability people think of often as an individual medical problem, uh, but it um, is a lot of it's about how the medical problem an individual has interacts with the rest of society, and admin's a big piece of that. Talk about an area that comes with a big onslaught of this work is when, especially if you have a, an ailment that's not easily diagnosed, uh, you know, the insurance, the paperwork, the doctors, the medical, all of that and then trying to navigate an inhospitable environment. Huge amount of work. So I'm writing about disability admin right now. I'll be looking forward to seeing that book. And when it happens, make sure I know about it. And I'd like to say thank you to Elizabeth Evans. Her new book, Life Admin, How I Learned Do Less, Do Better, and Live More. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been my pleasure. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. And there you have it, another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. I want to remind folks about my email address. I'd like to hear from you and let, have you let me know what you think about what we're doing here. Good, bad, or indifferent. If you have a suggestion for a guest, someone we need to talk with, let me know. While I might not always reply directly, I take every one of your comments very, very seriously. My email address is peter.solomon, S-O-L-O-M-O-N, peter.solomon at hotmail.com. That's peter.solomon at hotmail.com. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinion, Sunny's reactions, I know I'll be listening. And finally, thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, 
couldn't do the show without you, Phil. And to Ann Tideman Solomon, my associate producer and dear wife, you make it all worthwhile. Nothing left to say, but Happy New Year. See you soon.